Welcome to the Work Research Revolution. I'm your host, Cara DeLunger. In this podcast, I speak to doctors, scientists, professors, and business leaders who are at the leading edge of this work reset revolution and radically changing the way we work. We will be harnessing their collective insight so that we can create the catalyst that drives much needed change in the future of work around the world. Work Reset Revolution is brought to you by Softer Success. Visit www.softersuccess.com to learn how you can revolutionize your well-being plan and help eradicate burnout in your organization. So let's get to today's episode. So welcome to the Work Research Revolution. And today I'm with Tony Lamontagne, who is the Professor of Work, Health and Wellbeing at Deakin University, Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's so wonderful to have you here. And one of the questions I'd like to ask you would be, um, a lot of your work focuses on health and well-being. Can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit more about your work and why it's really important in the changing workplace? Well, boy, that's a very big question. <laughs> Let's see where to begin. Well, I came to focus on psychosocial working conditions or job stressors from an occupational health perspective initially. I used to look at my PhD was on an occupational carcinogen, ethylene oxide. And I take the similar approach that, you know, when people go to work, ideally in an ideal world, we would benefit from work, not just economically and from a sense of belonging and all, but also, you know, self-efficacy purpose. It would promote well-being and it would also not make you sick or injure you. And so as time moved on, my PhD was in 94 as time evolved from there, and mental health became a huge, well, mental health in general and outside of workplace, our attention to mental health and mental illness has grown enormously in the last few decades. And in Australia, it probably started, took off in the 90s. And in the 2000s, there was the first workplace program on mental health run nationally by an organization called Beyond Blue and an NGO. And It was around that time that I was getting into the work in mental health and dealing with job stressors research. And, you know, historically, when we would look, for example, I did some work on asbestos and this sterilizing gas that was used in hospitals, ethylene oxide, nasty stuff, but it would only affect or expose a small proportion of the workforce. Now, with job stressors, every working person, regardless of context, is potentially exposed to the good and the bad of the psychosocial work environment in which you work. And so what that means is that even small increases in risk or benefits to well-being are spread widely through the working population, as opposed to affecting a small specialized group of workers who might work with one chemical or one process or another. And so I thought, you know, I need to go there because, you know, you can have a bigger impact. And that's where I've been since. (laughs) And that mushroomed out a little bit from focusing just on the work-related aspects of mental health to also considering the workplace as a venue for promoting health. So, for example, when you want to prevent mental illness, it's fine to be promoting physical activity at work or through work, for example, gym memberships, things like this. But to me, the first port of call was to be sure that the work that was provided was psychologically safe, as we say, to the extent feasible. I think there's similar language in the UK and the US where I'm originally from, as there is down here in Australia. And so that's sort of what brought me there. And yeah, I've been dwelling there since doing wide variety of things 
Well, I'll let you ask another question or direct me to what aspects of that you'd like me to Yeah. So following on from that, and what do you think? You know, we've gone through a pandemic. We're still in the pandemic a bit. So what do you think? Very much so in Melbourne. I'm still locked down. Yeah. (laughs) Desperately Um, needing a haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that will open soon for you. But two weeks. Two weeks to go. So not too long. Counting the days. (laughs) So what do you think are the most important issues that are now affecting and I'd say workplaces, but I'd just like to say work because many people are working from home mm-hmm. or some are back in yeah. the office. What do you see on that at the moment? Well, to me, the really, the really big part that I think the most about, there's many, many dimensions to this. You know, for some people, this has been a positive, you know, working from home and having the flexibility. If your work is feasible to do at home and you don't have too many distractions, you know, pretty tough to be raising little kids and trying to do if you're a writer or whatever, <laughs> you know, so it varies widely. But the part that I worry the most about is what was exposed as the weaknesses of our system here in Australia. And that is, you know, disproportionately affected the lowest status workers who the newly defined essential workers, the people delivering your food, stacking your grocery shelves, serving you coffee, even takeaway only coffee, (laughs) you know, and the unemployment waves hit young and casually or casually employed, as we say in Australia, temporary employment here as an international term, your zero hours contracts or small hours contracts in the UK. These people were disproportionately hit with the cuts in pay and with unemployment and with underemployment, you know, cuts in hours, cuts in pay. And of course, also, they were much more exposed to infection risk at work. So the proportion of the workforce that least able to sustain, you know, those challenges is the group that took it, took it the hardest, you know, and that's quite a problem. So here in Australia, there were policy responses that did help. JobKeeper, it was called here, where many employers could get government support to keep their workers engaged and paid, at least to some extent. But of course, what the Commonwealth government did here is excluded a lot of those casual workers. You had to be in a particular job for at least a year. So your students or your young people who are working a few hours a day at the local grocery and have been there nine months, no, nothing for you. And of course, there's some assumption that many of those young people are living at home, but not all, certainly. And so the impacts were really inequitably shared. And that shows in the as the pandemic's rolling out in Sydney now, that's showed as well. We can see that those suburbs have been the lower SES suburbs have been hit far and away the hardest with the infections and COVID-19 illness. So, you know, there's a lot that we need to think about there. And the whole notion, even again, with the, your temporary or casually employed workers, there was a lot of sort of blaming. Of course, the blame game is only getting going, really, I think, <laughs> for the whole pandemic and the pandemic response, in particular, the pandemic response within each country. And there was a lot of finger pointing at, oh, well, these, these you know, people going to work who are sick and so on. Well, if you don't have paid sick leave and you have kids to feed or a mortgage to pay, well, then that's actually not a choice. And so this has been sort of laid bare here in Australia, probably also in the UK and elsewhere. And there were some responses that state level tried to do a bit of support for casual workers who were employed less than a year, but it was fairly small and temporary. The state doesn't have the money that the Commonwealth government does. And so, you know, that is a big problem. And most of the jobs have come back, but the jobs have come back are lower quality jobs higher proportion of casual, 
lower pay. And so what we're seeing is the continuing concentration of wealth and, you know, the hollowing out of the labor force into very highly skilled and high paid and very low skilled and low paid workers. And that's not sustainable, particularly for the people on the bottom. Mm. And, how, so and what do you that's think? a big problem. Mm. So thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you think problem. there's a solution to that? <laughs> well, yeah, I could say it in a very simplistic way. You know, it's a matter of redistributing wealth, you know, or paying people differently. So, for example, casual workers having certain guarantees or access to training. You know, small businesses say we can't bear the costs. But of course, your workers, young people, to tie it back to mental health a little bit, I'm going far astray here. We're into changing the fundamental economic and political system. (laughs) You may not want to go there in this podcast. So some of the reforms would be that these workers who have taken the brunt of the COVID-19 impact, Many of those effects, you know, insecure work, job insecurity is at an all-time high, of course, and it's probably having a greater impact on mental health than usual because the other buffering factors are not there, such as, you know, savings, community, getting out, and so on. And so this is a particular problem, and yeah, it'll come back. So to take that to the future, and obviously what's come to light in the way that we work is that changes need to happen. So... What would a work reset revolution look like to you? Well, okay. So on that note Mm -hmm. is that ironically, these people who have been particularly hit in the workforce by the impacts of COVID are also the worst exposed to job stressors, insecurity, low control, excessive demands, and so on, harassment, sexual harassment, psychological harassment, you name it. And they're also the least likely to receive any intervention or prevention or control intervention in response to those hazards, because they're essentially a disposable workforce. Right? Many employers don't see them as their responsibility. There's not a social contract. There's not a long-term relationship. There's not a concept of reciprocity. And so I don't have the exact answer, but what we would want is we want to know how do we equip those young people in those workplaces Do we reach them some way independently of those casual or temporary work arrangements such that they know their rights, such that they have genuine recourse when their rights are violated? So, for example, a study I did some years ago showed that young women in casual employment were several times more likely to experience sexual harassment than women in permanent employment. You know, so that's about exploitation. And of course, as a casual worker, if you would complain about that, you're gone. You have no more job. And so, you know, how to fix that? That's a very difficult one. There's a number of levers one would need to address. But part of it is information about rights. And, you know, many labor organizations campaign and recruit based on health and safety issues, including, you know, harassment of various forms or other hazards. And so that would be part of the solution. And it's also about what are the fair rules for employing people? What is the minimum sort of effort and reward that could be? The effort is the requirement from the employer. The reward is what you gain from it in terms of pay, in terms of self-esteem, skill, professional growth. And there I'm quoting, you know, Johanna Segrist's model of job stress, which is effort, reward, and balance based on social reciprocity. So we're back to the general idea of the social contract of work. So really everything keeps pointing upward to the fundamental political question of what is the social contract of work? It's disappearing at a pace. And of course, it's disappearing differentially. 
It's not disappearing so quickly for you and me, though it is at universities. Um, my, this week, we had more retrenchments announced at my university, academic staff and professional. But of course, at the bottom of the skill level scale or young workers, prospects are a lot more difficult there for them. And so that's a political and economic question. I don't have the fix for that. But it's certainly the case that the enormous, enormous concentration of wealth that we've seen occurring over the last couple of decades, you know, we need to relearn how to share the cake. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly how to do that. But, you know, you take Jeff Bezos and Amazon. He's now playing in space, but he can't afford to pay his workers anything more than bare minimum wage. And the injury rates are horrific. There's intentional approach to staffing such that there's high turnover to prevent union organizing and so on. And he's one of the richest men in the world. You know, so what? that's just silly. There's no need for that to be happening. So that's what I mean by sharing the cake. You know, he's got a lot of cake. He's got a very big cake and he's not sharing at all. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> sorry, I'm making light there of a very sore point. But, you know, there's system changes that would need to happen and to change things at the coalface. Mm, sure. well, and I know that's the very big one, but that's what I would love to see. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tony. It's been brilliant talking to you today. And I know our listeners were very interested and enjoy this session. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Work Research Revolution. I'd like to know what has been your biggest takeaway from this conversation. As a next step, share this episode with anyone that you think may benefit. Follow us on LinkedIn at Softer Success for more inspiration to change the way we work and contact us at info at to find out more about our burnout assessment tool. If you have any feedback on how to improve, please do reach out to me as I'm always keen to learn more. Thank you so much for listening and we'll meet again on the next episode of Work Reset Revolution. Music